I'd like to touch on many aspects of this chapter, but particularly focusing on verse 4. Verse 4. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. It's noticeable, incidentally, that in the authorised version margin, the alternative is given, knowing, beloved of God, your election. Knowing, beloved of God, your election. You don't need me to tell you, I, I suspect, that this is a remarkable statement that the Apostle Paul makes in this particular verse. The statement that he knows their election, these Thessalonians. He knows that they were chosen for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But from whence did this election come that he is speaking of? Well, it is the determination of the eternal God. Therefore, as he says elsewhere, elsewhere writing to the Ephesians, he says, he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that ye should be holy and without blame before him. And just repeating these verses brings home to us something of the depth of theology that there is here. This is deep theology. And yet, Paul says, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. The obvious question, perhaps, to us is, how does he know? How does he know this? How does he know it? He knows, in a sense, from what he is able to say about them, of what he has said about them already in verse 3. He says there, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, therefore, and knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. And he goes on to elaborate this in verses 5 to 10, which particularly we're going to look at this afternoon. He, he, he elaborates these, what we might call, marks of grace, or marks of election, marks of grace. But people often have a problem with this, with the question of the election and the apparent free volition or free will of human beings. And this is understandable because here we are and we are bound by time and sense. And as far as our experiences are concerned, well, we exercise perfectly free volition, make decisions for ourselves. And yet, in a spiritual sense, that is a problem because our free will, such as it may be, only acts and only can act within the constraints of our nature. What are the constraints of our nature? Well, the Bible says we are dead in trespasses and in sins. Spiritually, that is our dilemma. So, a change in our nature is required from outside. Yet it will come to us, it will come to us in a, in, in a way in which, on the face of it, our wills or volition is not violated. 
That is the reality of experience. And that is to us a bit of a, well, we might call it a, a conundrum. Our will is involved in coming to Christ, yet we are dependent upon the divine quickening. No doubt we will learn hereafter how these things are resolved. For example, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, that wonderful chapter 13, we read there in verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. So coming to Christ, perhaps can be pictured like a man going through, man, woman, child going through a door, on the outside of which is etched, whosoever will, let him come. And then, through the door, looking back, the same soul sees the words etched on the other side, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. However, by any accounts, this is not something that should discourage anyone or encourage anyone to be passive in the matter of getting right with God. No one is justified in being passive in getting right with God. We are not privy to the decrees of God. We do, however, have the invitations of Christ to come to him for salvation. And these we must take seriously. At any rate, Paul says this, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. And he says how he knows. See what he says here in explanation for the statement. And I would suggest this is highly appropriate in this day of our communion season in which traditionally we consider marks of grace. Well, he knows, first of all, because they received the gospel with power. Now this in verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. The point is here that they became what they became because of what the gospel did. Because of what the gospel did in them. It did not come simply in the letter or the word, not word only. Now, there are two things I would suggest to notice here. First of all, that the gospel came to them in the first place. I mean, think of it. Here we are gathered in this far-flung place of the United Kingdom of Western Europe. What are we doing? We have the gospel. Is it is a wonder to you? That you have the gospel, you have the word of God, you have the preaching of the word of God, you have it faithfully preached. Isn't that a wonder to you? If you go off the coast here, you, you won't come to any land till, till you reach, I don't know, Newfoundland or, or, or Greenland or America, Canada. Well, wonder, it's a wonder. Let us never lose the wonder of having the gospel, wherever it is, whether it's in Lewis or whether it's in Israel. Wonder of wonders. The gospel came. The preacher came with the word. He preached Christ and him crucified. And they came in possession of the gospel. These, the, these people in Thessalonica, when the gospel first came into Europe, 
They came into possession of it, how? Through preaching, through hearing, and eventually through reading the message, the gift of Holy Scripture. We cannot overestimate the wonder, privilege, and benefit of our coming in the way of Christ and the Gospel where we are. Yet, let us remember, to whom much is given, my dear friends, much will be required. And it will be a fearful condemnation for a soul to whom the gospel has come and yet in whom it has not had an effect, a transforming effect, a converting effect. At any rate, this concerns the means by which sinners are drawn to Christ. The gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power. Not in word only. There's something else to note. The gospel came in power and not just in word. In other words, in other words, it was a wonder that the, the gospel came to them, but let, let us recognise that it didn't come as something nominal. That, that perhaps is quite clear from verse 3 already, where he remembers their work of faith, labour of love and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly it wasn't something nominal. We haven't received the Bible. We haven't received the gospel simply to admire it. Maybe admire its literature or, or its logical qualities or even its sublime teaching. It is good to recognize the fine literally and logical qualities and sublime teaching. But it wasn't just given for that, for, for admiration. Paul knew of these Thessalonians. Does he know of you and me? He knew of these Thessalonians that the word of the gospel did not come as a dead or lifeless thing. No. It did not come in word only. It came in power. And surely this has been the experience of those of you who have come to the Savior, who have been responsive to this gospel, who have received the Christ, presented and offered to you in the gospel. Surely it came in transforming power. Can't you testify of this? Don't you testify of this? But then the question arises, what is this power, preacher, by which the gospel comes to people in any meaningful sense? Well, this is the third point here. The gospel came in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. So it wasn't just that the gospel came. It wasn't just that the gospel came in power, but here is how it came. Here is how we know it came in power because of the, of the Holy Spirit and what was produced in terms of assurance. Now this means that their hearts and lives were touched by it. No, they were more than touched. Their hearts and lives were transformed by it, though not yet perfect. Their hearts and lives were turned around. They were transformed now we get an inkling of the idea of this power that is involved here of the gospel when we appreciate that the word translated power is the word from which we get our uh, English dynamite. You picture that of the word coming as dynamite, dunamis, dynamite. The penitent believer will always testify of this, will always testify of this. 
Someone say, growing up in a church like ours, will certainly know the letter. They may know the catechism. They may know the Bible, large parts of the Bible. They will know the letter of the message. People growing up in a church like ours have heard it all before. They've heard it all before. The gospel certainly has come in word. But then, in the experience of some, there will come, or will have come that day, when it became more than that. In their case, the gospel Christ gripped them, turned them around, turned them around, turned them upside down. They hadn't perhaps listened, well, they'd maybe listened before, but they hadn't listened with any sort of enthusiasm or understanding. Perhaps they hadn't really listened before. And then the Lord, by his Spirit, brought it home to their lives like, well, like dynamite in the rocks. They were shaken. They were broken. They were shattered. They were transformed. Not that they felt perfect. But there was that day when they were changed by it. The Holy Spirit taking this word, bringing it home to our minds and hearts, taking the things of Christ and bringing them home to us, bringing home to us our need as sinners of a Saviour and pointing us to the cross where reconciliation is found, where peace with God is found, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, they didn't feel perfect. No, indeed, by the change wrought, when the ears were opened and the heart was opened, well, the perversity of sin and the power of sin was more, more clearly revealed. Now there is a lifelong struggle against these things, against the world and the flesh and the devil. However, these people that Paul is writing to, these Thessalonians, we read here that they received the, the, the gospel also in the Holy Spirit and much assurance. It is now seen, this gospel, as the greatest thing in the world. For any enlightened soul, for any soul who has come to Christ and been converted, the gospel, Christ, greatest thing in the world. <laughs> The greatest thing in the world. And some may say, can we really have strong assurance? The answer must be, yes, we can have assurance. We can have strong assurance. Of course, of course. When you see the gospel changing people's lives, when you see the gospel changing your life, when you see Christ changing your life, and not being just a dead letter, not being something you've just come and listened to and got away un unmoved, when these things are true, you can have assurance regarding it. It isn't just a nominal thing, no. Not just an intellectual assent, no. Something that comes from Christ. And this is why, incidentally, it is good for us to be familiar with Christian biography. To read Christian biographies, to see and read about the work of God in the hearts of men and women. Saints of old, spiritual biographies. This will encourage assurance of faith 
that it is of God and not of men. This word, this gospel, Christ changes hearts and lives. Here is something by which we know our election of God. The gospel did not come in word only. No, it came in transforming power spiritually. Christ captivated our hearts. Anyway, Paul knew their election because they evidently received the gospel in power. But what persuaded him of that? This is the second point here. And that is, he knew of their election because they gave a proper response to the gospel. Perhaps you're thinking that this is implicit in what has been said already. But let us just open this out a bit with reference to verses 6 to 8. In verse 5, Paul makes this general statement, as he does indeed in verse 3, without specifying or filling in this uh, labour of love, patience of hope, and um, uh, um, work of faith that he mentions in verse 3. But Paul could tell the gospel came in power to these Thessalonians. How? Well, precisely because of the impact it had upon them. The impact it had on them. What impact did it have? Well, I would suggest there are four striking things here in verses 6 to 8, concerning which I would invite you to search your own hearts. First of all, and this very briefly, all too briefly perhaps, but they were prepared to endure opposition for Christ. They were prepared to endure opposition for Christ. You became followers of us and of, our, of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Having received the word in much affliction. We can understand that when we read in the Acts of the Apostles the sort of treatment that Paul received in Thessalonica when he first went there. But clearly there was a church, a strong church planted there. But no doubt they experienced the same sort of affliction that Paul did when he first went to Thessalonica. But here's a sure sign, my dear friends, of being serious about the gospel when people are not faced by opposition, having received the word in much affliction, like the apostle himself. I mean, if you want to, to, to read what Paul experienced himself of affliction, you don't need to go much further than Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For example, from verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings oft, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by... The, the, the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, and so on and so on. These are the afflictions experienced by the Apostle Paul himself and by the Lord Jesus, of course, himself, who suffered in this life, came to suffer in this life. So, these Thessalonians, like Paul himself, no fair-weather Christians, these men, no fair-weather Christians, put off by persecutions or by the mockery of the world or adverse life experiences. They were prepared to endure opposition for Christ. 
Here is a mark of grace, indeed. A mark of the power of the gospel in your life. The power of the gospel, which is so contradicted by sinners, by those who are outside of Christ. But furthermore, they had joy in the Lord. We have this in verse 6, you see, having received the word with much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. Joy of the Holy Spirit. Interesting that this should be mentioned immediately after affliction. Do these things come together? Affliction, joy, affliction, joy. Well, you don't automatically relate the truth, the two. But it reminds us of what James says in his letter, chapter 1 and verse 2. He says that the believer can count it all joy when they fall into various trials, temptations, trials. Here again is a sure sign of a spiritual work in a man or a woman when in the face of afflictions for the gospel, they still have the joy of the Lord in their hearts. They're not robbed of it. That is an evidence of the Spirit truly working in the heart and of their heart focusing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there is also this in their response to the gospel. They were good examples to others. We have in verse 7, so that they, ye, were, ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. I mean, ask yourself, ask yourself, when other believers look at you or think of your congregation here, will they have cause to reflect on what an example you are? Example of what? Example of obedience to Christ, of faithfulness to his word, to the gospel, of living by the gospel in the face of adversities. Are we a good example to the churches, a good example to other believers? If we, if we wish a stimulus to our church life, we may well find it by looking or learning of the works and actions of other Christians, perhaps in other parts of the world, such as in, in China or Korea or, or Africa. They often give evidence of the Spirit working amongst them, even though sometimes their theology may be very defective, as we may think. But they are at least good examples, like the Thessalonians. And us, here is a mark, being a Christian, of being gods, of being elect. Good example of godliness to others. And there's a fourth point here of the proper response to the gospel, which brings out a mark of um, election, a mark of being the Lord's, and that is they were unashamed of the gospel. Perhaps this is something we could have said first. They were unashamed of the gospel. Why did I say that? Listen to what Paul says here. 
uh, he says here in verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God would have spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. What does that tell you? It tells you, unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Put it this way, if the gospel of Christ is not being sounded forth by a church, is it being thought of as highly as it ought to be thought of? Is there a lack of conviction? A lack of a sense of the importance of this gospel that we know? And these are challenging thoughts. So they gave clearly proper response to the gospel. And the response he gives us, we have it from verses 6 <coughs> to 8, clearly indicates what Paul is speaking about in verse 4. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. But then there is a third indicator of their election here, of their being the Lord's, and that is this. They set their heart upon eternity. We have it in verses 9 and 10, don't we? For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, in verse 9, Paul reports on what exactly the other churches in Macedonia and Achaia and elsewhere had said about the Thessalonians. Three things are evident here. Again, these indicate what Paul speaks of in verse 4. First of all, their lives were turned around. We've indicated this already, but here he says it again in verse 9. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned, they turned around. They were converted to Christ. And the proof of this, what they did in their worship, Previously, idols. Now, the living and true God. Don't think that the question of idolatry has disappeared. Somehow or other, this is something deep in the past. Our society is full of idolatry. The idolatry of materialism. The idolatry of, of the media. The idolatry of sports and the like. All sorts of idolatry. People will follow instead of following Christ, instead of following God, following something else, displacing him. They turned around from their idols. No hint here among the Thessalonians that any religion would do, not at all. One living and true God, and all people must turn to him. As we read in Acts 4 and 12, no, no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Exclusive salvation, exclusive saviour, exclusive gospel. And they embraced this. All other affiliations, all other loyalties, religious or otherwise, are false and idolatrous. So a radical change had taken place in the Thessalonians. Beloved, the church there was alive Alive, spiritually. Are you and I alive as we ought to be? 
gripped by the gospel, gripped by love to Christ and faith in him. Work of faith, labour of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But also they consecrated their lives to Christ. It's not just that they turned away from idols to the living and true God. Yes, they did that, but specifically they turned to serve the living and true God. Serve him. Christian life is a life of service for the master, for the saviour, whom we profess, those who believe, to follow. What service? What service? What service are you undertaking for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, worship and witness, and godly works and repentance and faith in him, humiliation and prayer. They were serious in their newfound faith and in, the, in their newfound saviour, or now found saviour. These are now consecrated people. Now this is a challenge for us, but also an indication <coughs> of the mark of grace as well. What are Christians called to? They are called to service for the Saviour. Discipleship is, a, is living for Christ. It is praying earnestly and without ceasing. Mm. It is being humble before God and repenting of our sins and striving against the world and the flesh and the devil day by day incessantly and seeking to witness faithfully for him to our neighbours, to our family, to our communities. We are to be as the Thessalonians, as the Thessalonians, so that we might have this accolade of Paul's, we give thanks to God for you all, making mention of your, you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and so on. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. My dear friends, we are to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Men and women full of zeal and godliness. When we look at ourselves honestly, when we cast a glance over our churches, do we see wholeheartedness in religion, in our faith, wholeheartedness in our, in our understanding and application of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's how it should be. By all means, let us avoid what became true or what was true of the church in Laodicea, uh, that it was lukewarm. Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness. Dread it. Dread it. But there's more, because there's a lively anticipation for the future. They set their hearts upon eternity. There's this lively anticipation of the future. Here's Here's another mark for the elect, you see. What are they looking for? What are they looking for? They're obviously, because of what he says in verse 3, they're obviously not inert. They're obviously not thinking to themselves, well, I'm elect, I don't need to bother about doing anything. That, that, that is a mark. Otherwise. But here's another mark. What are they looking for? They're looking for the coming again of the Lord. Their minds and hearts are set on eternity. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That was the Thessalonians. That is to be us. And so far as it is true of us, there is a mark of a, of a Christian, the mark of grace, waiting for the Son from heaven, looking for the, for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking for that coming again, when all this present scene will be burned up and the establishment of the kingdom of glory. That's, that, that's the destination of the Christian. That's the destination of the people of God. They must have their eyes upon, fixed upon it. They'll be praying for it, looking for it, working for it, and seeking always to recognize that they are ever before the eye of God. Wait for his son from heaven. More could be said of these things, of course, but we must close. Well, as we examine ourselves, I invite you as myself to examine ourselves, do we not confess our need to lift up our view, lift up our view to the things above? Here is evidence that a person and a people are the chosen of God. There is no scope for carelessness. The issues are eternal. The issues are eternal. And we mentioned already throughout these verses 3 to 10, we have practicality, practical marks, all of which relate to our human responsibility, our spiritual responsibility. The Thessalonian church therefore becomes a body which not only gives evidence of its election of God, but a body which every church does well to emulate and every Christian does well to emulate as they were emulators to be emulators of Paul and the Lord himself, as the apostle indicates in verse 6. It's a humbling challenge which confronts all our congregations and all who comprise them it's a challenge for your life and mine in these evil days in which we live and in which the Lord Jesus has called us to live. And it's appropriate, I would suggest, and necessary to search our hearts for such marks as we approach the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and to seek the Lord, to seek his grace, to seek his presence, to seek his power, to go by ourselves to our closet and humble ourselves before him that he would come amongst us in his power and give us such powerful marks of being transformed by his grace. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Isn't it a wonderful thing that the gospel offers to sinners? Not only a saviour for our souls, but deliverance from the wrath to come and the wrath which as sinners we deserve. But thanks be to God, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the sins of all who come to believe in this world and every day, age and generation. What a wonder it is, the gospel that we have. All oh, may we not be slow in the application and the apprehension of it. And may the Lord himself bless these thoughts upon his word. Let us pray.